Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is One Hate Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Yes, this is the podcast that has already examined all 166 pre-credits minutes of Michael Mann's 1995 seminal canonical crime opus, Heat. And we are continuing the show, not in a series of bonus episodes, but in fact, a series of sequel episodes. Yes, this is the Heat 2 Book Club, and we are finally at part six. Los Angeles 2000. This episode is a double bill once again, as we've done many times at the Heat 2 Book Club so far. The first guest is the incredible author of Off the Map, Freedom Control, and the Future in Michael Mann's Public Enemies. He is my dear friend, a really terrific film critic who rarely does it these days because he's also a really fantastic public health worker. His name is Niall Schwartz, huge guest of the show, such an important part of One Heat Minute. And if you've listened to One Heat Minute Productions, he was such a foundational piece of it and his relationships and his stories uh, that he shared um, and particularly a beautiful poem contributed uh, by Niles's brother was one of the great artifacts that I have from the show. So it's always a pleasure to talk to Niles. He's so insightful, so spot on, and uh, he's he doesn't need to 
bloviate. He's the kind of guy that just is incredibly incisive and brief. And I love, 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 love talking to him. So looking forward to sharing that with you. To close it out is the man uh, who really uh, was one of my great gets in the early series. He came on to the penultimate episode of the original series. He is a recovering journalist now, just really does some of the most fantastic, lengthy, spotlight-level cinema journalism for Variety. It is the wonderful Chris Tapley who uh, joins me again. He did the original sort of snapshot overview, our original Heat 2 micro review, which was the sort of aperitif, the entree for this Heat 2 book club. He comes back on to talk to me as well, which is utterly fantastic. I'm really looking forward to sharing that with you. And guys, thank you so much for listening to the series so far. It's been a blast. And of course, I want to share a surprise. We have one. No, we have two. No, we have three whole episodes where I've spoken to all the guests about them fantasy casting Heat 2. Because I know you guys have been thinking it. I know we've kind of just ever so touched on it. You're thinking probably, Blake, why haven't you asked them? Well, we have three more almost hour-long episodes, which are going to be dropping over the next couple of weeks. But before we get to that, let's travel back in time. Let's travel back in time 22, 23 years. Whenever you're listening to this, you may be listening to this in 2023. Back to Los Angeles. Back to the year 2000. It's part six. Los Angeles, 2000. On the hillside above the gym, waiting in a Toyota Supra, he boosted outside a multiplex movie theater. Chris watches the Crown Vic pull in and stop, but not in a slot. Chris kills the engine and picks up the TAC 338 sniper rifle with a flash suppressor attached to the floor in the back. He climbs out of the Supra, takes up his concealed firing position. A focus comes over him, frosty. He's waiting for Hannah to pull into a slot, get out of the Crown Vic, grab his gear bag, and walk across the parking lot. Hannah de Casals, give it to me. The regular at the diner who fits Gabriella's description, he's Wayne Fabiano. They know him. He runs a TV and computer store in Pico Union. Fabiano's Electronics, a laundry list of priors, receiving stolen goods. Hannah spins the wheel and guns the car back into the street. Hannah screeches away. Shit. Chris races back to the car and pulls out to follow him. I think off the bat, which what resonated with me is how we encounter Vincent Hanna five years after the events of he, 12 years after uh, what we have at the beginning of the book, because his body is catching up to his will. And, you know, we encounter this guy in 88 and he's, you know, kind of a morally ambivalent guy. Uh, you know, we see him doing coke. We see him with prostitutes. Uh, we see him breaching ethics as a police officer. And 12 years later, you know, he's on Adderall, someone else's prescription. And the prescription is for one pill a day. He's popping three a day. Yeah. Three at a time. Sometimes he's trying to do coffee, but he's also forgetting things. He, you know, he, Drucker is pointing out, what about that evidence that the DA needs? 
that you said that you'd give him. I'm, you know, he's covering for Vincent. And Vincent feels a coil in his chest. He knows that he... His, there's so much on his plate, and he is unable to handle it anymore. And Hate Heat, the movie Heat, you could say, is a movie about aging, but here we are later, and you really get the sense. There's a passage in the book where he's remembering something that Justine told him, who he's not, who's not talking to him anymore, and it has to do with how what he's doing is uh, his own. It relates to his self incineration. I think it's on page three thirty six. If I'm, yeah, speed won't give you the power to track your prey in the dark. That glow you feel, it is an X-ray vision itself, incineration. And I've been thinking about this because, uh, you know, recently my own dad passed away, and oh, I'm sorry, man. Thanks, um, but you know the. I'm also thinking about how you know, as cinephiles, you know, all of our dads are going to be passing away soon. Michael Mann is pushing 80 and he says he's healthy and I hope he is and I hope he finishes Ferrari and everything but I can't help but read these passages about Vincent Hanna getting older and this is a, an author kind of disclosing how certainly his own body is going and perhaps his you know he's still I think uh, if you read interviews with him a very sharp guy and this book is a very captivating page turner. But this is a guy who mounts these huge motion pictures, which are logistically <laughs> formidable. And if he ever does make this into a, I just, you know, how? Um, <laughs> beyond the structure, and it's possible, but it's, it's like, I don't know how you get the casting right and you get the money right and you know it had it will have or it would have four or five incredible set pieces part six you know chapter six has the god or Dahmer on twilight of the gods car chase at the end <laughs> which is you know and then in, in mexico there's the, the neil score and um the you know chris shaherless Oh yeah, and and the desert and the desert canyon shootout. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's all these things that would just be incredible to watch on a screen, assuming man could pull it off. The Michael Mann that we know and have fallen in love with. I mean, even if we didn't like Black Hat, that movie has um, still has a half dozen holy it's, shit moments. It's growing. It's Black Hat grows because it does exactly as you said. Those holy shit moments when they drop. They're holy shit. They're really. When a director has can still do a holy shit moment and can still do half a dozen of them in a film, you know that's something. You know? It's like tracks on an album, Nas. <laughs> you know, like if you buy a like one of one of my friends who's in a band, Ben Moffat, a million years ago. Shout out to him. He was in a terrific band. He used to they used to do like pub rock in Oz, lots of covers and things like that. And we would always talk about music, and they had original songs and stuff like that, which I was really grateful to like consume their albums. And he's like, Blake, if an album has four bangers, 
it can have you know you know and it feels like when we were growing up the sort of standard for an album to have like most albums to have like 10 11 songs or 12 songs is like if you get four bangers you can have eight terrible songs but you need four and if you have three it's not a very good album and if you have two like the the tipping point (laughs) goes down but the expectation was that not every song is going to like completely blow your mind like it's sometimes tied into a thematic arc of a story that is being told but yeah, I think I think if you can still reach those resonant frequencies enough, any movie's good. Like it's worthwhile. And yeah. uh, um, we we have just been spoiled for dec for decades that Michael Mann seems to hit the resonant frequency from like the frame one yeah. until God moving over the face of waters, which is miraculous. <laughs> you know, most of his movies have those like amazing opening sequences, like The Insider. Your head's in a hessian sack. You're driving through, you know, the Lebanese you know scrub um uh, beirut uh, beirut uh back streets and then you end in this flux you know of of um of a of a spinning door at the front of a, a building in in new york city and and or like even ali you know just sam cook to like hands raised thunder clapping rain pouring jubilation like you know these things are kind of insane yeah. Frank walking away at the end of Thief, you know all those things. It's just you know, it's it, it has that. There, are these grand symphonic moments that happen again and again and again in Michael Mann. And to be fair, all those movies also have these unforgettable characters. And you could say that uh, Black Hat, and some people have argued, including myself, that the, the human or what we call the human is almost ancillary yes. to the new cyber world. And consequently, yeah, Hemsworth has presence and Viola Davis is great. And I love Holt McCallanane, um, Richie Coster and others, but no, there's no Will Graham. There's no Frank. There's no Vincent Hanna. There's no Neil Macaulay. There's no Hawkeye. There's no Magua. There's no uh, 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 Muhammad Ali or, um, Max or Vincent or John, John Dillinger, yeah. <laughs> and so I I am hopeful that uh, Ferrari takes us in a, another direction, and you know we'll see how that goes. And thankfully, but, we know this; it's already finished shooting. Yeah, I heard that, and uh, that means that um, Coppola can have Adam Driver now. And, <laughs> yes. Uh, so, yeah. Which brings me back to my dad's. I hope, you know, I'm thankful that Michael Mann wrapped the shooting of Ferrari. And now let's see that old man Francis can wrap Megalopolis. Uh, the other half of part six that's interesting to me is the character. And this sort of relates to what I said about character in Black Hat of Chris Chihurlis. Mm. And it's interesting how the structure of the novel has been compared to Godfather 2 because Christian Hurlis is kind of like a Michael Corleone figure. And it comes down to, much like Michael Corleone uh, killing Fredo, who you're not, even if your brother is a screw-up, as uh, Anna says in Heat 2, blood is blood. And... Felix, the is it Felix, the yes. Anna's brother from Paraguay, is uh, you know a, a weak brother, 
a weak businessman and someone who really almost sabotaged the company with the was it the Chen family, this mm -hmm. other family. And Chris betray Chris betrays that trust with Anna, and he's not going to tell her what actually happened. Um, despite her admonition, blood is blood, let my brother live. And at the end, very end of the book, I think, there's kind of this thing that it, my man and gardener describe how Chris Shaherlis is feeling and it's and his pulse feels electric, dark, powerful. Chris Shaherlis is going to become the, you know, the cyber warrior, you know, this electric post-human individual. He's also, I think, very morally ambivalent. He's also, you know, he, he could be not unlike the character, the main character of the other Michael Mann book. By Michael Mann book, I mean Michael Mann Presents, Elaine Shannon's Hunting LaRue. Terrific book. And Yeah. And he kind of reminds me of going down that that path. He's also, you know, we're with Chris and we're, you know, we identify with him as in as much as the author tells us to. But at the same time, observing how he acts, I'm interested in how he's he's not Neil McCauley. No. Neil McCauley, when, if he has a beef with you, says, look at me. He will shoot you while looking at you. And it seems that Chris wants, you know, I think it's kind of absurd how Chris wants to get uh, to avenge Neil by killing Hannah. But he's not going to look Hannah in the face while doing that. He's, he's trying to sneak up on him. It's very on Neil McCauley. And it's as, as Bill the Butcher would say about Amsterdam and gangs in New York, you're being a sneak thief. And maybe that's consistent with this new character, this new criminal, this cyber criminal who, you know, you're becoming a ghost man. Uh, and that ghost, that ghost man ethos, it, it is text. It's been text in heat because yeah. that's what their partnership or, or, or you know, I've just been watching JFK and that's the whole, you know, they, you, the great Joe Pesci as David Ferry is like, it's all about triangulation of fire, you know, when it, <laughs> you know, and that great line just made me think of, you know, the way that Chris approaches a target is different to Neil, but you kind of need it. And in the, the same way that Michael Torito approaches the target, you kind of need it. There's that phenomenal exchange scene that in the Van Zant betrayal where the guy comes to deliver cash and, they're going to have it. And Neil's the guy who waits in the car with his gun at his hip. You know, I tell you what to do. Makes the guy throw the cash into the car. And then, that, yeah. you know, his offsider sort of sneaks out of the, the tray of that, that utility vehicle and sneaks up beside. And then Chris spots him. And what's interesting about that scene? Well, Neil's there to do the face-to-face, -to, -face, to be the guy that looks you in the eye, to get a sense if there is going to be a betrayal. And where's Chris? Chris is on a high perch, concealed and Chris is going to, Chris, the question gonna, is, he, he, he's willing to take you out. 
that's the thing. He 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 can he's on a perch. He's a snipe. He's in the sniper perch. He'll take you out. And we we get a sense based on sort of Neil's um criminal moral compass that if that exchange goes well, they part ways. And he's a businessman, in in the words that he shares with Nate. But Chris yeah. is there up in that perch, hidden, waiting. That's yeah. his modus operandi. He's the guy who can like wait, pick off a target, no qualms about being the sniper. And then Chirito, who's now departed in the year 2000, is the guy with the ridiculously sized shotgun, <laughs> also <laughs> willing to stand and just blow you the fuck away. Right? The action yeah. is the juice. He's 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 the guy who's like the la, you know, the 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 Alamo guy, the last line of defense. Um and yeah, it's 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 watching him say in all the entanglements, human relationship and otherwise, um, that Neil has when it comes to business and this codification of his morals, Chris is like, that's that thing of having to look someone in the eye and kill them is ultimately it's all implicit. We don't actually say it, is the is how Neil gets caught. It's it's what choice is he gonna make in the moment? Right. Do I have to look him in the eye? And it's kind of one of those things that I was so grateful for in the book is that we didn't, they, although it kind of is teased, we didn't have the realization because it wouldn't make sense for the character that Vincent and Chris face off. Right. Uh, Chris is always in the shadows. Always in the shadows. Up on the perch or you know and i'm not really sh- whereas vincent and neil even in this book i mean the ghost of that respect and you know you could even call it love um that vincent has for this other this double of sorts mm-hmm. hangs on and chris is something else yeah um but well, and Chris is just this plastic person who's, you know, f- fades in. He materializes out of nowhere. He, you know, he has what's his alternate. Chris Bergman is his other identity. He's playing angles. Um, and. And also the disguises continue. Yeah. He's, he's, um, he, I, I love here they describe like he's got a basically a shaved head, you know, coming into this one. Extremely lean, greyhound thin, you know, lots of exercise. He's he's kind of he's he's become like you said a plastic band, but I just like those it's the full metal jacket scene where they all get their head shaved. Yeah. And, and all of their personality and humanity is gone. They just become yeah. this massive humanity that is just going to go and be turned into a you know uh turned into a weapon and he's a weapon he's that and it complements his his uh drive for this new criminal empire this new cyber dimension this new paradigm as he either tells kelso or kelso tells him we are now anonymous ghosts whatever yes. they're doing yes uh, and did you love that kelso was a formed large in this How yes you... I, I mean I, I mean i loved it i loved it because he's such a memorable fucking character it's like a coen brothers character you know like the the characters in heat for us 
are like all uh, are like Chet Proudfoot in Fargo, you know, like you just like some, yeah. I think there's a ubiquity sometimes of these memorable side characters. That you're like, Oh my God, I love these guys. And that was just so amazing to me. Yeah. And I always felt having, you know, getting into Michael Mann and cybernetics with, you know, the public enemies book and black hat, but Kelso is sort of a har harbinger for this. Yes. Uh, stuff that, Michael Mann really wanted to explore, you know, because he, after Heat, he was going to adapt a William Gibson book, remember, Count Zero. Yes. I think he still probably wants to do that. It's one of those things that's, you talked about Vincent aging, and I was just before we started formally recording telling you about the chaos of my desk. And that's one thing that like really struck me preparing to chat to you is reading the this chapter and talking about vince <laughs> vincent's desk and the overwhelming amount of stuff that he needs to actually get done the order that he used to have in his life and do kind of effortlessly and all that stuff was easy and he was the guy that could always rely on to give another case another high level mm -hmm. high intensity you know full-on investigation uh, every time we move to the next thing it's like the desk gets fuller and i feel like at the moment you know, looking around at my desk and looking at the projects and look at what I'm reading and look at all the research. I'm like, the desk is pretty full. <laughs> you know, I could, I could maybe use three Adderall <laughs> to focus and get some of these things done. But that's, you know, that aging thing, it's, it's the miraculous law that surrounds Michael Mann and his ability to develop, consume new things, consume music have multiple yeah. projects in a row, shift focuses, you know, have these dossiers and folders of extensive research and his teams working on research. Um, it catches up with you. Yeah. And I think, I think he's conscientious of that. And uh, you could say, I mean, considering the problems he had with Miami vice uh, and I think he also had some pro production problems on public enemies, all that mounting, all that planning, if contingency gets in the way, one variable goes amiss. Yeah. Things, you know, it's hard to put it back together. Or it's, um, you might have to rewrite the script. <laughs> uh, like in the case of Miami Vice. I, and in the case with Hannah, what's interesting, we talk about that crowded desk and we bring up the evidence that he was going to give to the that he's supposed to give the, to the DA. It's that kind of thing, that kind of breach of police ethics, though, that would lead to that character's downfall. And it's almost, you know, we, we see him throw off a uh, throw a guy off a roof. Now, granted, the guy he throws off a roof is a unequivocal rapist, and so we're like, that's a good thing. But it's still not. He's, you know, suspending due process, and. It's 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 a De Palma. I mean, look, it's an it's an '80s cop in Chicago. Yeah. And, I, and there are a few folk, and mindful not to take us too far down this digression because I want to stay in the year 2000. But the few folk I know that were like Vincent would never do that, or the Vincent in Heat that I know would never be that guy. Mm -hmm. And maybe, maybe as I'm getting older. I have a more ambivalent view of people where I'm yeah. like, no, I could see someone doing that. I can see him being that guy. You know, I can see him, I can see him pushing his, his mode too far. 
going yeah. too far. Yeah. And I think it's also, it says as much about man's view of the Chicago Police Department in the 1980s as it does about Vincent Hanna. <laughs> about well, the ability. Chuck Adamson. And, you know, yeah. if you watch Crime Story, uh, a lot of those stories with Mike, the Mike Torello, Dennis Farina character, he gets up on the stand and lies to the judge in front of everyone. And the the idealistic lawyer played uh, David Abrams, played by man regular Stephen Lang, calls him out on it outside the courtroom. And Farina slash Chuck Adamson is like, you got a lot to learn, pal. And, you know, we live in a time where the term a cab, you know, all cops are bastards is pretty commonplace. Uh, with certainly a lot of people I know. And uh, Vincent, as much as we love him, does, you know, he is kind of a bastard. He's our, he's our bastard. But, <laughs> you know, it's it's that thin blue line of, you know, what he has to, believes he has to get done and, and uh, the right way to, the correct way to do it. And I... I would see it as, you know, if, you know, in Heat 3, that, you know, it's stuff like this evidence not being delivered on time that, you know, suddenly leads to Vincent Hanna, you know, probably going the way of uh, Al Pacino's character in Insomnia or something like that, um, who has a lot of Hannaistic, Hanna esque traits. It's a, um, heat, it's an unofficial Heat sequel. Nolan is yeah. on the record about that that's what i've always thought um but yeah so that that's why i think i chose part six question yes has the book made you think differently about heat in any way good or bad for example I know there were many folk out there, and I believe you were one of them. Like, we all were day and date guys to grab the Quentin Tarantino and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood novel adaption, knowing, um, uh, you know, or sorry, novelization rather, knowing that it was going to expand the universe of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So it was fun to read. And, and some people really were struck with the novel, and others were kind of like, didn't like the novel. You know, it was usually predominantly positive or at least sec segments of it people loved and others people could buy or leave but the thing that i am grateful for is the text that i feel is sacred continues to exist and it felt in keeping with that and in a different medium it wasn't like an offensive thing to me i i yeah. kind of i it didn't trivialize things in heat i i I almost feel like the mediums mean that they're di completely different expressions of these characters. Yeah. There's different ways to look at this book. You know, is it a sequel or a prequel or is it a, a very compelling appendix and yeah. afterward to yes. the heat movie that we know and love so well. The thing is, is that, yeah, there are some things while reading the book that, it, you know, I, I hear, the phrase and, and sympathize with strains credulity a lot, you know, considering the vast number of coincidences that happen here, especially during that car chase. And that, that might be where it goes over the edge for me. Yeah. But the thing about it is that whether it's the way man writes or whether it's, 
how imprinted we have been by the film, we can see so easily into seeing and experiencing these characters and having them speak, you know, Pacino's Vincent Hanna and Robert De Niro's McCall. They're there. I I felt no discord in that sense. And in, in that way, it there was no dissonance for me. And, you know, again, I it's a kind it's a five hundred page book that you could read in a couple of days. It, it's a page turner and you want to know it's happened. It actually reads like a screenplay in a lot of ways. A very I mean it's so much of it is in the present tense. And we can talk about it, you know, I know as Sean Burns has said that, you know, this is impossible or to do as a novel, we should just, you know, take it as again an appendix or, you know, novelization or afterward to the film. But um I I worry about the thing I worry about in regards to your question is that okay, let's say there is a film and the thing that's perfect about the film, or one of the things that's perfect about the film is the casting. And that was built that film was made during a different time in Hollywood. That film was made during a time where movie star actors had a different kind of capital. Pacino and De Niro and guys like Hoffman and Gene Hackman. I don't know that we have that equivalent nowadays. I don't know. And even a few years ago, we still had it in my mind. Yeah. We still had Philip, we still had Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour yeah. Hoffman. Uh, and Daniel there are guys like Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix and mm-hmm. yeah. uh, I think Colin Farrell is... Yeah, you know, Colin Farrell and Daniel Kaluuya. There's a few guys that are out there at the moment that, you know, they maintain a level of capital. Yeah. Um, and if only Heath Ledger was alive. That's oh someone who I could very much be in a Nicole-esque um, character. Yeah, or a uh, Chris. Or a, or a or phenomenal Chris. Chris. Yeah, I I really don't know how to cast Chris. I have some ideas, but, but, but I just wonder, you know, that's the thing. Now you have George Miller who was able, able to do Fury Road and, you know, without Mel Gibson and kind of recreate it, make this totally new thing that worked circa 2015 as a great film of that year and of that decade. And there was no misstep. And man is in that same league, I think. Um, but again, if he's done, he's going to be 82, 83 years old. So I hope he's still doing whatever the hell he's doing. <laughs> uh, he and Scorsese and whoever else who's able to still be churning out movies at this time in their lives. Uh, so I, I'm not, you know, I... I have the book in front of me and, you know, I could open this book and read it and be fine, but, you know, I could turn on the film right now and live in that world and not feel burdened by the, you know, how these characters are also fraught with background and knowing what man and Gardner put down won't really affect me that much. The film is, uh, 
perfect perfectly exists in its own sphere and will endure Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. basically it just i mean you see how thick this book is yeah. and i flew through it I, flew, I couldn't put it down and i'm not like a, i can't put it down kind of guy when it comes to books people say that oh, i couldn't put it down i'm not really that guy i mean uh, there's certainly books that i'll fly through but like it never hits me like oh i couldn't put it down that just that that kind of way of putting it you know it's it's rare I people could, use I it put they, this down they overuse that because there are definitely books that i'm like that i can't put them down but it doesn't happen often enough. Yeah, and it's because it's 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 a voice that we know. Yes. Like it's 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 man. It's man. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's manese. I mean, we just kind of we know it. It's delicious. I mean, I was just I actually took some notes last night when I was reading through this bit we're going to talk about um just as an example. Page 423, I gotta read this. The Transpo, a Marshall Islands registered container ship from Indonesia to Dar es Salaam. South African mercenaries fighting for Dennis Sassou and Gueso's Cobra militia seizing power in the Congo with backing from France and Angola. I mean, give me a fucking break, Michael, man. Like, just, just, okay, bro. 
<laughs> you studied up on all that shit and just laid it out for us. I mean, that's just, I love it. I love being inside the brain. Um, and that's why I like the book. Uh, and it's, as we said before, uh, I just, it's such a great, um, it took this thing that I love so much and it made it better when I was so scared that it was going to ruin it. So. Oh, the, I, I'm glad you talked about that. There was so much fear and trepidation. And I think that it, even in some parts of the book where you're not sure where it's going to go, uh, that first time you're like, oh my God, please stick the landing. Like, I don't know yeah. where this is going, but for the love of God, stick the landing. Because so much of heat, the film is this perfect calibration of all these huge tendrils. And then it's like it starts being plaited together and weaved together into this fine singular narrative by the end. Like it's weaving all these tendrils together. There's one loose end, which is Chris Chehalis, but like everything else, you know exactly where, you know, where all the uh, the pieces are on the board by the end. And then there's two pieces left, mano a mano, and it ends. Yeah. And it, the crescendo is so amazing. And so that's, if someone was asking me, I'm like, what's, what's great is the kind of the beginning of the book, you're, it does feel like an echo because you're with all the characters that you're familiar with. And then you go your separate ways with them throughout the book. But six is six gives you that real heat feeling of like all the tendrils are coming back together. All the locomotives are about to converge. It's like, here we go. This is everything that, that the book was promising and lived up to for me. It was in the, is in this final stanza. And it, it reads like a screenplay, by which I mean it's very much prose, but it it has a it has such a motor to it. Yes, uh, it's it's sort of that can't put it down thing again. But it just this especially this section. All I will say actually, all of the set pieces throughout the movie, I mean, <laughs> throughout the book, <laughs> uh, they they're all so wonderfully written because you're never confused in any sense. Yeah. And there's a lot going on in each of them. Um, but they're, they're also exciting. You know, the big hotel sequence and the big, the, the sequence, uh, uh, is that in Mexico? When yeah. The, me- the, the, the hotels the, in Mexico. Yeah. But, it's Mex- it's Mexicali. The one where they're in the mountains of Mexicali. Mexicali. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. And, and like, and then this one here, which, uh, we were talking last time is, is in speed country. Which I love, <laughs> uh, right down there with the where the where the 105 and the 110, and all of that. Just I, I visualize it because I know the area so well. Um, that's another thing, by the way. I love reading the book. It's a, it's a great book to read when you have a very good knowledge of where shit is in LA. Because <laughs> he, he's, uh, although I will say I think I said this the last time I can't remember, but I think it's hilarious that he very explicitly states that they go to Camp Manalini. It's like, yeah, I know you shot it in Kate Manalini, but like now you're 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 making it clear that he pulled him over at the one on the one hundred and five and said, "Let's go have coffee," and then you drove like half an hour up to Kate Manalini in West Hollywood. It seems like <laughs> something they wouldn't have done. Maybe they would have found a diner off the side of the road. But anyway, uh, I, just, I just obviously I just love the detail. But this section, um, particularly like halfway through six, whenever basically when Chris hears the name Vincent Hanna on the news. And he just, it says he stills, you know, and like my own like hair on the back of my neck stands up. It's like, oh, shit's about to go down. Because we've also seen Chris, like, you know, he was, he was peak physical condition in the film. We've seen him having to go through this recovery stage. It's talking about him being lean and like much leaner, sort of like Mm -hmm. he's gone back to like militaristic 
roots. He's running all the time. He's super fit. We've already seen him have some pretty significant showdowns. And so the minute that you see him, that happens, it's like, oh, Chris only has one love language, you know, which is murdering the shit out of people. <laughs> like he's like, he is not fucking around when he is well, Vincent Hannah's name. You're like, oh, this is that. Particularly Vincent. this person. That's what I, I, I yeah. love the sense of vengeance that he instantly has. Like, it's yeah. kind of lovely in yes. a way. Like this is the guy that killed his boy. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to go kill this fucker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. and, he, and he goes down to Torrance and they've got this fucking, uh, you know, storage unit packed. Of, it's, it's like Sarah Connor, like waiting for Judgment Day. <laughs> like, dude, like busts open this container that they paid five years in advance for, which is just, I, I love it, man. It's like he knows exactly what to do and how to do it and let's go. And, and then that, and then obviously you've got the parallels thing happening with, uh, with Wardell uh, going after Gabriella and Hannah trying to protect her. So it's kind of like ballsy and crazy and exciting to have these two like driven things happening at the same time. Chris trying to kill Hannah, Hannah trying to save Gabriella from Wardell and Wardell being the fucking psycho that's trying to kill Gabriella. That's my kid, by the way, if you end up hearing him screaming throughout <laughs> this. Uh, but yeah, it's like, there's a lot going on and a lot to, to juggle and then to put it all into like a car chase eventually. And like, you know, some of the most uh, dense traffic that we can have out here. Uh, it's, it's kind of a perfect ending for an LA crime saga. I, I love how you said something that I think a lot of folk have attributed Wardell and the Wardell piece to like, Oh, he's kind of like a Wayne grow. And in some parts I do definitely see the similarities obviously but i think one thing that wardell has that wango didn't seem to or at least masked it was that wango felt so flighty and so on the seat of his pants like that time when he talks to van zant in his office he's like oh we took some major scores but like there's not the same like he he, he knows how to get to neil but it's not like he's once once he disrupts the whole bank heist he may have a feeling that he's next or he may have a feeling that he's going to like Neil's going to try and come after him, but he's already kind of knows that Neil's going to try and come after him. The thing about Wardell and especially that, that, that scene that is in this section when Wardell encounters Gabriella in the cafe and there's mm -hmm. recognition that is so amazing. And the thing about Wardell that is different to Wango is that he is intent on doing harm. Like he will do anything. He will drop everything and go to create chaos. And so, yeah, I, I, I think you're so spot on that the, the momentum of these two things. And what's great is that poor Vincent Hanna is like the unwitting meat in the sandwich because like he, he, he thinks he's on the trail of Wardell. He has no fucking clue about Chris Chehalis. That's the scariest thing. What's so cool and how, why we keep saying this book's a movie because it's so cinematic in your brain because you can just see Vincent yeah. like bombing around and having that big swagger that he has. And Chris is just like in a high vantage point concealed with a high powered rifle with a scope on it, just putting him in the crosshairs and he has no clue. It's, it's really sensational. I also like how there's this sort of, I, I have to actually be honest about Wardell. I, I never got a handle on him because it's such an erratic character uh, in some, in some sense um, that doesn't, I mean, like there's, there's something just that, that's like missing for me, I guess about the character, like something about drive. That's not 
basically, I'm sure it will come together when it's when he's depicted by someone when Michael's working with an actor and like they'll, they'll it'll be there. But but as I'm reading him in the book, he's such a like not a cipher, but just like almost, you know, like mm. th- th- there's there's just a, a, a randomness that I that, that doesn't click for me. I mean, it's like like some of the dialogue with with Gabriella in the car, even like dude's got a screw loose in a in an interesting weird way that hasn't been fully fleshed out. That I'm just I'll be very curious to see how that because I can't picture anything but Wang Girl when I when I'm reading the book. <laughs> I think everybody does. I mean, yeah. how, who who else can you really think about? So I don't even know what this guy's gonna look like at the end of the day, but um, it's 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 really it's interesting. But but I was gonna say like there's this sort of sly establishing of because both of these guys are criminals obviously Wardell and Chris how much Chris is clearly a better criminal than this dipshit <laughs> like like yeah. like like because there's this scene where he's chasing and he's, and he's kind of parallel or tailing or, or it's you know sees the firebird up doing its shit up in the distance and he's trying to catch up with Hannah and all this and he says what's he doing he has to be aiming to get off the freeway ASAP like he's like, what is this lunatic doing going against the track? Like he's just watching him do everything wrong as to whatever he's trying to do here. And it's just kind of a funny, like, I don't know. It just, it just felt to me like, yeah, one of these two is a sharp criminal. The other is not. <laughs> well, that's, that was the great, and that's the great parallel to jump back to the book is that like when, when Wardell does, um, when Wardell does encounter neil in that canyon mm-hmm. neil's such a better criminal than him he like mm-hmm. skates out of there so luckily because neil has to save gabriella's mom and that's mm-hmm. the only thing that gets totally, him out of yeah. you, you know it pisses you off yeah he, he comes in and neil just he, that whole like the whole wardell crew is is fucked <laughs> like they're just like you drive in you're like all oh, these guys are gonna die like every one you of them is going like to TikTok and shit. They got, they got the dumbest names. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's it's the he's like oh they 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 are so in over their head. They do not know the 1988 like sharp instrument, the scalpel that is waiting for them when they get here. Like it's they're in so much trouble. And so yeah, yeah. it's just again reinforces that Chris is that Chris has gotten so good. That's the other thing in the book is. Also, just seeing how good Chris is when you put him in a new environment, because he can just reads just natural people, people who aren't used to being around serious, deadly people all the time, are not even on the same frequency as him. He's like yeah. a true, deadly guy, and yeah. everything from taking Charlene out of that her prost- you know her prostitution gig in Vegas, and then everything with the the Chens and the Lou's he kind of like smells whether someone is deadly dangerous or whether they're not. And he can immediately diagnose it. And that's what's so cool. And yeah, when they're racing along, he's like, what the fuck? He's like, what is this guy doing? This guy doing? <laughs> there's so- a, and there's also a line in there. I mean, I, I, I wrote random lines down when I was just, no, I love again, it. Just the, the deliciousness of the uh, writing 444. I just wrote the river sticks is kicking in. I don't even know what the hell that means, but it, it worked. And the Volvo wagon, both on fire now. The river Styx is kicking in. I mean, I know what the river Styx is, but uh, he just gets in his. What I'm thinking, what I'm, what I'm saying is, I think he just gets in his zone, and yeah. he just starts throwing shit in. Like there's this bit where he says, uh, 
Oh, man. What is that? Oh, God. I love this. 435. Wardell tells uh, Gabriella to enjoy her last chance power drive. I'm like, now we're just throwing boss lyrics in there. Like, <laughs> fuck it. Like, I just, I love this. Um, and, like, little details of just criminality. Uh, Chris paying attention to the, quote, ingress and egress. Which I'm yeah. like, what is that anyway? And I looked it up and it's people entering entranceways and exiting exits. I'm like, I guess that's something you would do if you're casing a joint or whatever. And man is tapped into this lingo of ingress, egress. I'm like, that's cool. Uh, whenever Wardell goes out onto the onto the wrong side of the freeway, uh, he wrote Gabriella's skin shri- shrinks. And I was like, God, that's perfect. Yes. Like, just the language. That's just, like, I get it. Yeah. It's. He paints such, he paints like word pictures that you only ever used to hear when he would talk about backstory. But in the book, it's mm-hmm. like, it's, it's the text. It's not just the subtext. It's the text. It's so great. Mm-hmm. And there's a Dodge Viper that I guess one of Wardell's crew drives. And I just kind of love that because I love Dodge Vipers. <laughs> <laughs> 1992 Dodge Viper is probably my favorite car. So. Just just reading the words Dodge Viper. There's a Dodge Viper in the year 2000 flying around in there. Can't wait to see it on the screen. Yeah. There's, um... So, he's trying to get off the freeway. We're streaming towards the end of this thing. And... Then we get to this, like, face-off. This streaming through cars, this gunfire, this sort of craziness... Was there a moment when you were reading it for the first time? Can you remember where you were like, is is this the way that Vincent goes? Is this the way that Vincent goes down? It felt like it was, it was leaning that way because this, this, again, this, this fuck up has gotten kind of a leg up on these far more polished professionals than he throughout um, by sheer luck. And I almost wondered if, if that's going to be sort of a dark point to be made. Uh, just the, the the randomness of uh, of uh, of that. Um, so yeah, yeah, and, and he gets popped. You know, he gets shot. So you start mm-hmm. to wonder. But I also just love this like cloaked figure that's doing something that the cops don't know what the hell is this going on. I see this cover fire being laid down. They're like, what is what is this? <laughs> and this like mystery figure. Uh, there's something I don't know, like mythic about it or something. Um. And, and, and I remember too, like, you know, Chris had a, had a chance to do it. Yes. Right. And, and, and he says, he has a moment. Know, he has a moment. He's he, got to make he, a choice. He realizes that Hannah's whole thing here was saving this girl who Chris has a connection to. And he says, it isn't your time yet, Hannah, not tonight. And, or, or he thinks it. And, uh, I remember when Hannah realizes what's been going on and oh that that's Shaharless. And again, he's a driven person. He has one thing that he's that he does and that's catch bad guys. And there's no hesitation. He's like, I'm coming for him. And I'm I remember just being disappointed. Like <laughs> like, come on, man. He let you go. You don't know that, but like he let you go. He like he, it, it's interesting how like both sides of this coin have morals in Michael Mann's universe, but the morals are different. Yes. You know what I mean? They're both true and good and virtuistic or whatever. That's a word. 
but uh, uh, they're, they're, they're just different. And, and, the, and in this way, one is more disappointing than the other. Yeah. Of course, Hannah's going to do nothing but go after Shaharlis. Uh, but I, I just remember that ting of like, oh, I wish you guys could just hang out and have a beer. <laughs> I, but I think about, this is the thing that I think about and it kind of leads up to, you know, it, it leads up to like this, you know, I remember when I first heard about the novel and I first heard that it was happening as a prequel and a sequel and I was like, okay, you know, this has been tried before. Obviously, Coppola kind of set the template that no one has ever been really able to truly realize. Like, no one has ever really been able to do both of those things in an effortless sort of way. And when he goes, I'm going to go after him, and they realize and they see in the CCTV footage that they're like, that's Christian Hillis. When they see that all go down, and he's like, I've got to go after him, it's this one thing, this resignation in Vincent's voice, which is like, I'm going to go after him. But the way that I saw that in my head was like, he can't, he can't touch this guy. Like this guy has been mm. out on in the wind for five years, comes back, has a chance to kill him. Doesn't comes and mm -hmm. intervenes in this one moment. Then he disappears. He's out. Like he's not, yeah. LA is not his playground. He's not coming back, which leads me to the finale, the final moments in the blue room. Hang on, before, oh, before, before we, get, we get to that. Chills whenever uh, Hannah sees Macaulay's picture in the locket. Like, oh I'm ready God. for that moment in the movie. I can't wait. I'm ready for that moment. Like, it's like, that's the moment where he's like, holy shit. And it all kind of cascades. And and uh, and I also, to your point, uh, in a sense, I, I don't think he'll ever catch Shahar. He can't. And... He's too. It's like he's kind of too good, and he, he's never going to fuck up to the extent because Neil fucked up. That's why Hannah yes. caught him. Yeah, and there's a, there's a kind of kind of a mirror of that here, which I love. Which you know, Chris has his moment in the in the tunnel, if you will. Yes. Uh, w which is hearing Hannah's name on the broadcast and making this decision, you know, very risky decision to go after him. Um. So that's probably as much of a fuck up as he's going to make. And he's decided he's going to let the guy go now. So it's like, he's in the wind now, baby. Like, I don't think. Well, also it's the, it's the Edie and Neil car moment. That's what he I mean. The it, it's, yeah. The moment in the tunnel. Oh, no, no. I mean at the car when he exits the hotel, it's go get the girl. Oh yeah. 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 It's go get the girl or go one-on-one -on -one with this guy. <laughs> and he goes, mm -hmm. no, nah, I'm out. Like, I'll take yeah, the girl. He made the right call. He made yeah. the right call in that moment. Neil runs off to his death. Chris can't do that. Chris Chris is not the same. And that's what's so great about them. That's why they're so, such great mirrors, Macaulay and Hannah, is because they can predict each other's behavior because they have the same instincts. Well, they've crafted, you know, even though their morals are on a mm -hmm. completely different spectrum, they're like, they they have these instincts. And he does that. But yeah, when he, when he sees that locket and it's Neil, and he's all, that's what's so funny because it's like the ghosts of this thing come back so quick because he's haunted by the fact that he didn't have he didn't ever get wardell and he can't make sense of it at the time because they they close him in a noose and they get all of his other guys in 88 mm -hmm. and then he just disappears and so the paradigm of being able to find people around the country effortlessly as contemporary crime stuff can you know you can track people you can track their credit cards whatever but none of that is in this none of that makes sense for this particular time Waddell escapes, changes identity, and also has the benefit of like millions of 
dollars that are stolen to be able to start a new mm -hmm. life and change all his identity and do that. But then when that happens, it's like all the ghosts of Vince's past are coming back to haunt him, which is really, mm -hmm. which is really great. I love that sentiment in this, in this part of the book. I was like, yes, this is great. And, and then now the yeah. angel of death, Chris Hill is, is coming. <laughs> like there's a moment where Vincent is standing outside the gym and Chris is on a high is in like a high car park and he's like got the high powered rifle on him and Vincent's about to basically walk into his death and then he jumps in the car when he hears about the Wardell stuff and then drives away and you're yeah. like, oh, yeah. shit. It was that close. Totally. No, and to your point too about Chris being a different guy than Neil, um, he, he's he's always been established as such too. You know, like, the, to me, the sun rises and sets with her men. Like, all this stuff that just clearly marks that division between the two um chris has never had the moment though that uh that neil had with uh gabriella's mother he's never he's never had that kind of that tragedy that clearly was like the thing that that helped build that bedrock and neil uh he's, he's had a different version of it i guess i should say um and he and he's and he still holds that love you know that leading into this entire sequence is that phone call with charlie mm um that he has which is uh kind of wonderful so yeah i mean all shades of the same thing but just those difference in the shades is what makes all the difference in the world so it's very cool but but back to the blue room yeah that's i mean look why i was saying the whole godfather bit was that chris basically cleans house he just cleans house yeah. he, he like anyone who is even tangentially involved with the deal who is not a completely trusted person. He just cleans house, even though he knows mm -hmm. that it might ruin his relationship. He's just like, yep, I won't touch him. Bang. Mm -hmm. Kills everyone. Mm -hmm. Everyone is, every, <laughs> everyone is dead who, who is untrustworthy in Christian Hill's life. And I just love that so much. But when we he get not there, no, he is not. And it's the final chapter of the book where He's in the blue room and Gimme Shelter is on the jukebox, which I love. And well, by the way, since you brought it up, Gimme Shelter, because I was going to say this, that's clearly the last song we're going to hear going into credits on this fucking movie. And yes. I can't wait. <laughs> it's going to be so sick. <laughs> that, however, he lights this, it's probably going to be like silhouette, like blinding light on. I'm just picturing, like, you know, kind of coming in the windows or something what are you not going to tell me about christian hairless and fucking give me shelter place like, it's gonna be it's gonna be so dope because it's such a nate song it's the natest fucking song of all Absolutely. time it's so <laughs> cool it's like in nate's place give me shelter plays fuck yeah like some people get a bit like oh that's a bit on the nose needle drop i'm like no give me the fucking if you nah. can do it you so in my head I'm like reading this and that line, that line, <laughs> my friend, John Glynn, for like a week after he read this book was sending me voice memos saying this line, like in a whole bunch of different Pacino impression readings. Like, what are you not going to tell me about Christian Hills? <laughs> like it just, I kept getting them as voice memos. It was the, the highlight of my week when I, when I got it. Um, but I just love so much that he goes back because this is like, it felt to me so much like at the end, he's like, I'm going to go after him, but he's got to let it go. Like he has some part 
that he needs to do to move on. He's closed this huge door in a, a huge gaping hole of one of his massive cases that are in his career with Waddell. He's closed that. And the only way that he can revisit it, because like, I think, you know, Casals and Drucker and all those guys want to move the fuck on. Like they don't want to be thinking about this heist that they didn't get everyone. They got three out of the four. They didn't get the money. Um, but still Hannah as this loner who doesn't really have any other things in his life that he's looking to do or, or to, to, to be, he's like, I'm going to go back to Nate. I'm going to sit here. Cause I know that he knows so much that he's not telling us, like he's never going to say a thing about this. And what are you not going to tell me about Christian Hillis? I was just like, this is good. I love this. I love that he knows, but he, Nate is never going to talk and he can't prove it. So it's just good to just, it's that it's the same ethos that he had with like, what do you say? I buy you a cup of coffee. It's like, what are you not going to tell me about Christian Hillis? I know, I know that you're going to do it. I know you're never going to say a word. You're never going to tell me where he is or how you helped him get out. But I know that you had a hand in it. It's like you're the last character that's left on the board that I can even interact with to sort of reach this thing that was the peak of my whole career. Yeah. And by the way, Nate, if anybody is like a Martin Scorsese character in all of this. Oh, my God. Nate probably yeah. is, so Game yeah. Shelter's fine. <laughs> <laughs> what was the other scene with Nate and, and, and Vincent? Um, it's it's it... it's early. It's in the 95 prologue where he he's um where they right they, after everything yeah right yeah. after it's, yeah. they go right after everything and they go and um and you know and, what i would do i remember it now yeah he, he goes he goes into him and he's trying to get information he's he's he's, he's got his, his his uh his i guess he's his fence um but this is what i would do i would lose that scene i would make the scene at the end of heat 2 the first time Vincent hannah and, and nate ever see each other and talk i agree like it's just it makes it it would make it just such a much more interesting beat because there's you know, so much more there's so much more nate with chris getting chris out yeah like I, I think you have to do the getting chris out scenes but i don't think yeah. you need to see i don't think you need to see um and there's chunks in the book that you know that just could be excised like it could just be implied mm -hmm. but nate getting chris out of la super important vincent and his crew seeing nate that could just be a, a line like he went down to this bar the blue room yeah you know, throw his photo down on the thing he's not talking and vincent's like yeah, yeah. he's not going to talk he's like you know check the borders whatever and then it just rolls into or even the... if he could even if he could play with that to where they didn't even nail that like they they, they were trying to figure out neil's fence and they could never they could even talk about this fence that they could never whatever uh, just some some through line that clearly he's been working in the background and then clearly in the very very last scene he's he's nailed down who this person is and he goes in there and uh and and, and delivers that line i just think that could be a little more fun they could play Not with that, that. I, I tell michael Mann what to do but, but. liz that's the thing we <laughs> we both know you know innately because you're so You've seen screenings of films, you know, man, you've spoken to him a million times and we're both acolytes. So we've read and, you know, we've looked at everything that he's done, but it's like the stuff that he can just instantly peel away to get to the raw momentum of this. If he turned it into a screenplay is just, it's going to be a breeze to adapt like as into a oh, screenplay absolutely. because he's got all, all the homeworks here. This is the homework, you know, it's and, mm -hmm. and turning it into a movie. You can then have, 
embellishments and get excited about how you sort of, you know, tweak things. But man, this is one thing I have to ask you. That whole, this line to me feels like the greatest closure. And this is what I've spoken to a couple of people who are less familiar with Heat lore. Are like, oh, this leads up to Heat 3 where Vincent hunts down Chris Chehalis or whatever. And I'm like, no, no. <laughs> this is the end. This yeah. is the this is the end. He knows he can't catch him. This is him accepting I can't catch him. What are you not going to tell me about Christian Hellas? Like for me, mm -hmm. this is the most I can see into the heart of this character who I have been freaking obsessed with for so long. I'm like, this is closure. This is as close to closure mm -hmm. as Vince Anna gets. And I'm like, no, he's going to hunt him down. I'm like, no, he ain't leaving LA. He's got cases piling up he's got murders he's got things that are happening he's he's barely holding it together he's got his great team covering for him at this stage of his life this is a moment where maybe he can actually start to be a little bit more like that old vincent hannah even though he's lost a step and actually just slow down like he he's never gonna catch this guy sometimes you have to have that like i can't catch that guy and it and you can only do everything that you can do and so in that moment, I want to push me, back on this. You really think I want to push back on push this. Back. I, I just, I don't think he can let it go. I don't think it's in his DNA. I mean, I, there's certain things that like, cause it's kind of like, there's a, there's just that moment after the freeway shit goes down where he's locked in, man. Like he wants, he wants to get him. Yes. And yeah, he can accept that he, that, it's a, it's an impossibility maybe, but I don't think that that means that he's going to stop doing what he can do or, or you know what I mean? Like, yes. I don't, my point is I, I don't think there's a movie in it. I don't think there's a story yeah. in it going forward, but I don't think this is a guy that turns that off. No, he, I, can turn off. I mean, I mean more with the Chris thing of like, he, there's that great line in heat when he's talking to Casals in the elevator, which I love where he's like, 48 hours or whatever he says, like 36 hours, he's gone. Bye-bye. Like he, he kind of does know. And I think knows he's way back from where though. Yeah. He's exhausted, but he knows that he's going to go. And so that like, once Chris goes overseas, like he can't keep chasing him with LA, you know, with yeah. LA yeah, PD yeah, resources. Yeah, yeah. He's kind of come to that. Exception. I don't You're think right. he's going to, I don't think he's going to change. I don't think he's going to change, but that was that just that one thing with me. I was like, I've, I like argued till I'm blue in the face. I'm like, this is, this isn't, there's not a heat three. I know that we've been trained to say like i almost wish it was called heat part two um but 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 i don't it's not it's not like a series we're not going to see heat three electric boogaloo like it's not there's no more vincent hannah chasing krisha hairless yeah i mean in well, this. but but how do you square that with this 453 sure hairless you are good and i'm going to find you yeah i i i don't that for me it feels like that's the most Vincent Hanna thing to say. He's never going to give up looking for him, but he can only, when he comes into LA, if he comes back into LA or the greater West Coast area of the United States, there's a chance that he might get ensnared in that net. Or maybe he catches someone, or maybe, you know, I mean, he doesn't even know Kelso exists, but like maybe, you know, Kelso gets caught for something or whatever and starts the, the drag net closes. But I just never, yeah. I, I can't, I can't imagine, I couldn't imagine that there was an end to the, you know, I knew that he lived a full life and an imaginary life afterwards or whatever. He kept doing what he was doing. He probably drove himself into the ground. He drove himself mad. We already got a sense that that was the kind of guy he was in the film. 
but I, I feel like this is the end. I don't think it's, mm-hmm. I don't think this is like an opportunity to tell more Vincent Hanna stories in my mind. Yeah. But no, he's always, but, but he always wants to, that's the thing. Like when he walks away and he mm-hmm. thinks he's already lost, you know, was like, you were good. Like, I don't think he ever, even in that moment was thinking, good. you don't, I don't think he bon ever voyage, thought, motherfucker. Fucker. You were good. What do we got? What have we got? <laughs> just devolved into us, like, quoting <laughs> with voice inflection. Now, do you have any kind of a tinge of sadness that you um, discovered uh, through this, what the next stage of Chris's life was? Because there's something, I mean, it, it was as well done as it was ever going to be, and I, I, I do love it and how it's kind of really elevated him mythologically and the kind of overall mythos of the of the world that man built but there's always been something about heat the movie how we leave chris the melancholy of that has been so delicious to me over the years he's never going to see charlene again what's where's where's he gonna what's he gonna be after this like you know just just where we leave him there um, not even a crossroads, just like uh, on the precipice of the abyss, really, is where we leave him there. And I've always just kind of liked that. Yeah, that's um, the thing. But now that, gives now me that gets cracked wide open with all of this, you know. So that's the thing that gives me the most conflict is that I know that they kind of have to touch on Charlene. It's like because because we learn about Chris, we have to learn if he ever because because the melancholy of that moment. You're like it has to be addressed and if it wasn't it would be like a i think when it like narratively it's like a gaping hole but i agree yeah that's one of the most powerful in a movie that i've obsessed and you know occupied like a church that is the one of the most powerful scenes of that movie and if he never sees charlene again that is that is so poignant and powerful and the fact that he kind of does see her in the book and then and then speaks to her I almost don't need him to ever talk to her again. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. there's a scene that he actually has closure and I I almost like don't want him to ever have those conversations. I would prefer yeah. he didn't. I prefer he stalked and saw and had all the intentions and then walked away because it is yeah. a dream. It's a dream. He has to walk away. She told him and he's learned the lesson from her, you know? It's also sort of... A- I guess an inevitability that their paths, if not crossing again, would come close again because heat is, you know, mid nineties. That's back 30 years ago now when it was like a time of you could lose track of somebody. Yeah. Now it's like, I'll catch you in my DMS, bro. Yeah. For <laughs> however much longer those will last. <laughs> um, you, you know, you track somebody down on Facebook, whatever. And that's just like the base basic version of that i mean obviously people can find people but it's just there there was something about that sort of pre not pre-internet because the internet was around but just pre-prevalence of internet where you could lose somebody yeah um, to the ether of the world you know i remember being a kid and we had like family friends we had family friends who came over from the states who did like an, a, a motorcycle tour of australia there are four young american guys my mom had met them you know, friends of friends when she traveled and they came over and like, we had other like family friends who would come and stay with us occasionally, like, you know, long-term friends. We were lucky. We had a, you know, we'd, um, we staying in this big house and we lived in this beautiful area. And 
So we would have visitors. And I think about these people and I like, you know, out of these groups of people that we met and I, I have memories of firmly as a kid, some of the people I don't mm -hmm. remember their names. And this is in mm -hmm. the 90s. And I, there's no way in hell that other than a random Polaroid or a random old school, like, processed photograph that's in an old photo album of mine or in a pile of photos that I would ever even be able to get a look at them to do it. And then, you know, the best luck I've got is taking a photo on my phone and getting Google image search to see if it brings up a Facebook profile. But like, that's all you can do. Like you lose track of people. And, and I feel like, um, yeah, that's what, I, you know, it's, um, there's that great, there's a great line from like Al Swearingen in the Deadwood movie where he's like, they're trying to put a phone in his bar and he's like, a real man knows the value of being unreachable or something to that effect. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, that's, that, that's, that's what these guys are holding on to. And that's why this era has a bit of romance. Cause like it was before everything was tracked and you know, everyone yeah. was sharing. It was just like, there was anonymity. There was things that could happen and it would just be told in stories. And yeah. You know, and yeah, that's, um, I think that that's really, and, th and that's what makes sense about the whole 88 thing as well. It's just like, once a guy mm -hmm. goes, if they've got money, they can just disappear. If they go across the border, what are you going to mm -hmm. do? You're not going to extradite someone. What do they look like? I don't know. Yeah. You know, they could have changed their appearance. It's like no international cooperation for things like that. If it's not a huge deal, if it's just a murder or a theft, they're like, yeah. Totally. He too, baby. Thank you for doing this with me again. Obviously, man, I'm happy to do it. Happy to talk about heat with you. It's always a pleasure. It's super fun. And um, yeah, this, I, I was so glad when we got to catch up the first time to talk about this book actually landing because there wouldn't have been probably, I could say that there's probably two people in the whole world that would just never have shared their opinion about how badly it disappointed them if that was not the case. <laughs> I would have been like, yeah, yeah, I read it. <laughs> I read yeah. it. It's, yeah, yeah. it's a book. It's a. It sure is. It's a, It's definitely a book. It's definitely a book. What do you What do you think of Heat too? I love Heat. You know, I'm the Heat guy. <laughs> I just sort of kept distracting and deflecting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a yeah, ninja. Yeah. Oh, oh, love those characters. <laughs> <laughs> Would have been the most diplomatic shit of all time. But yeah, that's one thing I can hope. If there's one thing I'm left with is um, the ongoing impression that yes, Colin Farrell could absolutely do a De Niro. And yes, I would love everyone and their dog asking him about Miami Vice too. That would be amazing. Just make it happen. Make it happen. You're the best. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, man. Good luck with the rest. Happy right. to be part of the book club. Yes. A book club for a change. We actually read. Yeah. We read here. Oh, words. <laughs> <laughs>
with the amazing Niall Schwartz. If you want to do me and Niall Schwartz a favor, please jump on over to wherever you buy your books, either physically or digitally, and look for Off the Map, Freedom and Control, and Michael Mann's Public Enemies, his terrific tome. Check that out. Go and seek out Chris Tapley and his incredible work. Go buy a variety if you're in the States. A physical copy, you can read his incredible oral history of all things Wag the Dog, chats with Jane Rosenthal, Robert De Niro, Barry Levinson, Dustin Hoffman. Oh my goodness, what a fantastic tome that is. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to all of my guests. But as I tease at the beginning of this episode, if you're now listening to the end you forgot, three more ginormous stuffed episodes to go. A lot of recommendations, a lot of fantasy casting. We'll catch you on another episode of One Heat Minute, just around the corner. You know, and it feels like such a 20th century movie. It feels like something David Lean would have done or tried to do uh, when he still had that kind of currency. And even then, he might not have succeeded. It's incredible because, like, if you if you don't have time to watch all five seasons of Lost, you can just watch fearless <laughs> not a week goes by that i don't think of the ending of gallipoli it's left a mark a uh, year of living dangerously uh you know and then something like last wave even that's so uh deeply embedded with the land and the story of the land the story of the place you know i don't know that i'd seen very many movies at that point in my life that had such a down ending and they had such a you know sort of strong sense of folklore uh, 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 uh attached to it uh, as that and Something always so poetic and lyrical about Peter Weir's work. Gallipoli was the first movie that ever traumatized me, and I don't think I ever really recovered from it. <laughs> and I'm still upset that they played it in school. Like, I don't think it's actually possible to make an... They say it's not possible to make an anti-war movie, but I think Peter Weir pulled it off. Because yes. no one watches that movie then thinks, I want to go to war. Uh, Peter Weir is the greatest director that Australia has ever produced. Like, bar none, hands down. Like, no yeah. one else is even in the room. I think you have covered some really titanic filmmakers and some really titanic films so far. But I, I truly think what makes Peter Weir special and what makes you doing this one special is we don't talk about Peter Weir that way. And we should. Peter Weir is one of those guys who I don't get why he isn't a bigger name why he isn't more in that rarefied air yes. because i think film for film he's one of our very best filmmakers he has brought his a game repeatedly to <laughs> many properties there are films of his that i hold very dear fearless uh you know uh, the mosquito coat i will fight somebody if they talk bad about the mosquito coast it's man i love that movie but in general i just think he is a special filmmaker, a smart, lyrical, um, hallucinatory filmmaker. He's a very dreamy filmmaker, and I don't think he gets his due. You know, Master Commander is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, you know, it's easily one of the best movies of the last 20 years. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's a grand scale. There's a historical backdrop to it, but at the same time, there's such an intimacy in the relationships. Uh, which I think is not just a great film and one of the last great epics in the truest sense. Um, I, I think is actually kind of a sliding doors change point moment in, in cinema history. I think 2003, when that comes along and it is a 
an old-fashioned, you know, we don't make them like that anymore type film. I think if Master and Commander spawns a franchise at that point, the entire cinema landscape globally is completely different. That That's the movie that I wanted to see. Ten of those, you know. Uh, <laughs> and Yeah, I know they're big fans of Fast and Furious and everything. God bless you. But Master and Commander <laughs> should have been. It's one of those things, again, I... I am not uh, I'm not a seafaring man, sir. <laughs> but there is a sense of authenticity. There's a sense of really watching a, a genuine dedication to recreating history unfold on a big screen in front of you that you can't help but inspire just genuine admiration and awe. If you're gonna pick a film where he really brings every one of his skills to the table, it's Master and Commander. I think you picked the right one, man. Yeah, very excited to see what you you pull you pull out of this Blake that's right our next series is Peter Weir and Russell Crowe's Master and Commander the series is called Podcaster and Commander Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.